We are starting 2 Corinthians chapter 1 today. So maybe some of you, maybe not all of you, many of you were with us through our study in 1 Corinthians. We spent nine months studying Paul's relationship with his letter to, one of his letters to the Corinthians. Some say there were actually four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of them preserved. Maybe one of them is sort of embedded in 2 Corinthians, but we'll talk about that when we get to that area. There was a a little bit of a contentious relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, and that sort of spawned all of these correspondences back and forth between them. If I could have maybe one word to describe Second Corinthians, it would be transparent. Transparent. In First Corinthians, Paul was responding to their questions about theology, their questions about Christian life, practical doctrine. In Second Corinthians, Paul is responding to questions and doubts about his personal ministry. You're going to see 2 Corinthians is a very personal exchange, a very heartfelt letter between Paul and the people in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is opening up truth to them. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is opening up his heart to them. He's revealing the truth about what's going on on the inner man, the inner life of the Apostle Paul. Alan Redpath, a well-known Bible commentator, said, nowhere does Paul open his heart to his readers so completely as he does in his second letter as he relates some of God's dealings with him in his inner life. So this is a pretty powerful letter. It's a very personal letter. We think about and we talk about the amazing Apostle Paul and all that he did, the miles he traveled, the churches he planted, the sufferings he endured. And we think, man, this guy is amazing. And now we're going to get to read about what was going on on the inside of the man while he was enduring those sufferings and challenges as he spread the gospel and as he took Christianity across Turkey, Asia Minor, and into Europe. So it's a pretty fascinating letter. He wrote it while he and Timothy were in northern Greece. Northern Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those are the churches in northern Greece. Corinth and Athens are there in southern Greece. I'm not going to give you all of the background because we've been through that in 1 Corinthians. So if you want to know more of the background of the city, the historical information, you can kind of go back through our YouTube and find the video on 1 Corinthians and you can get all the information. But I will remind you just geographically, there's a little spot at the end of Greece that looks like someone took it and just pinched it. There's a little four mile wide narrow land bridge that connects the Peloponnese. It's almost an island except for that little four mile land bridge. And that's where Corinth is. That's where Sparta is. These are the cities that are in southern Greece. So we've got Macedonia in the north and Achaia, which is the region where Corinth is in the south. So he wrote this letter, not from Ephesus where he wrote his first letter, but as he and Timothy were traveling in the north. They were either in Philippi or Berea or Thessalonica, probably Philippi. So that's when he writes this next letter to the Corinthians. You see, there's a strained relationship between he and at least some of the people in the church. There was what we would call an anti-Paul faction in the church. So some of the people liked him and they enjoyed his ministry, but others really challenged him, really questioned and really doubted his ministry. So he's put in this place where he has to defend himself to the people that are there because one of the problems is they were more interested in how things looked than how things really were. As long as things looked good on the outside, then that was what they were looking for. But Paul wasn't real attractive on the outside. His presence wasn't very strong. His preaching wasn't very strong. He had a lot of knowledge. So they tended to enjoy pastors who had a better stage presence, 
a better oratory. And so they were rejecting the Apostle Paul, wondering if he's even really a valid apostle. So you can imagine what we're going to find in this letter as we go through it. I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. It's at times you see Paul exasperated with these people. And at times his words are packed with depth and affection and emotion. So with that, we break into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So the letter's written in kind of standard old world style. They would start with the introduction. Here's who's writing the letter. So we know there's no doubt who wrote this. It's signed in the beginning. Paul wrote it. And he had with him Timothy. You remember Timothy was a young man, sort of a ministry partner, a guy that Paul had mentored. And Paul didn't minister alone. I like that about Paul. He was wise enough that he didn't have just his own solo ministry. Sometimes working alone is easier. And there's an old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And the apostle Paul went far. He traveled 10,000 miles and he had a team that was at various places at various times working along with him. Timothy was a young guy he invited onto his team. Timothy joined him. They did ministry together. So Paul, an apostle, or sent out, one who was sent out by Jesus Christ and by the will of God. Paul didn't take this up. Believe me, this was never Paul's intention for his life. Believe me, I can tell you, this pastor sitting here, never my intention for my life. Sometimes God just interrupts your life and says, hey, I got something different for you. And that's what he did to the Apostle Paul. Not everybody's called to be an Apostle Paul. Paul was told he had a mission from God. And then the church recognized it. The church, his home church, his sending church in Antioch, just north of Israel, they're the ones that recognize the calling in his life and they sent him out. The Holy Spirit sent him out. And he went, others stayed. Not everybody's called to go out into the foreign field, but somebody's called to go. So we're continuing to pray and we're thankful for the people that get into ministry right here that start serving, discipling, teaching, helping, aiding, whatever, right here. But we're praying that God might raise up some young men and women to send them out. There's a lot of places where the word of God is not being preached. And my heart, our heart, we sit here and we enjoy, don't we? We enjoy being able to open our Bibles and read the word of God. And there are some places where people are starving for the truth and no one's taking it. So we're praying that God would raise up young men, older men and older women that might say, hey, God is calling me out to go take the gospel somewhere. So that was Paul. That's Timothy. Paul writes the letter. Who's it to? Well, it's to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Achaia is the Southern Greece and Macedonia in the north, as I said. So it's to the church of God there in Corinth. No doubt about who it's to. Verse two says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a standard kind of greeting, a standard introduction, a standard request for blessing. And really in one sense, it's standard, but in another sense, it's so meaningful. When Paul asks for a blessing on the church, as he gives them the letter, he says, I want God's grace to be for you and God's peace to be for you as well. And man, we need that at Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. We need God's grace. Are we together in this church? There are times in our lives, most of the time, all of the time, when God gives us stuff we don't deserve. That's what grace is. 
Everybody wants things to be fair. We get troubled when things aren't fair. How come they got this and we got that? It's not fair. Have you ever uttered those words? It's not fair. Salvation is not fair. Jesus had to become poor so you could become rich. That's not fair. He had to lay down his life so you could have life. Grace isn't fair. We live in a community where grace is hard for churches. We're tough on each other. I want a church where it's the grace of God. Because if there's no grace of God, if you're not in a church where there's the grace of God, the undeserved blessing of God, and you recognize like, wow, God, we don't deserve this, then you'll never have the peace of God. And that's what he prays for as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he jumps right into the letter. I read it to you in part. Verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, who continually comforts us in all our tribulation. So I have a couple of questions for you guys. This is the group participation part of the sermon. Are you ready? What comes to mind by way of word association when I say the word pressure? What comes to mind? Work? School? Squirrels? Today's world, okay, I thought you said squirrels. Make me nervous too. Fresher cooker. We just had graduation tests. Family, thank you. I'm glad someone said family. We're not playing games here. People experience pressure in family. How about social pressure? I mean, a lot of people who have social anxiety. Like it's hard to come into a room like this because you feel pressure. Like I don't want to have to talk to anybody. Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to get judged by the way I looked or I dressed or there's social pressure? And there's even pressure in church. If I don't do the right thing, if I don't present the right way, am I going to get accepted? Am I going to get rejected? So would we agree that everybody experiences pressure in some way or another? Well, pressure is the word tribulation. You read it there. Who comforts us in our tribulation. Tribulation, the Greek flipsis means pressure. The Latin tribulum, where we get tribulation, was the big, heavy wheel that was towed around by oxen or horses or donkeys. They would drag it over the grain and it would crush the grain and separate the wheat, the wheat berry from the husk. And then they could thresh it and they would have then the wheat that was useful. So pressure, tribulum, tribulation, this dragging over of a heavy wheel, it separates in life the things that are useful from the things that are useless. And that's what Paul is speaking about, this pressure. He uses the word tribulation. Let me give you another question. What about the word comfort? What comes to mind when I say the word comfort or comfortable? Nothing? Ben and Jerry's, amen, a man after my own heart, except it's Briars. Anybody else on board with Ben and Jerry? Two guys that bring me a lot of comfort, Ben and Jerry. (laughs) And a movie. And just checking out for a while. I just want to watch my show. And I want to check out. I want to sit in my easy chair, my comfy chair. And I want anybody to bother me. I want the comfort. What else brings comfort to you? How do you respond? How do you respond to being uncomfortable? Emotionally uncomfortable. Physically uncomfortable. Relationally uncomfortable. Say that again. Prayer. Okay. That's this great spiritual answer. It's true. And we're going to talk about that. That's the right answer. A right answer. What are the wrong ways we respond to being uncomfortable? Complaining, check out with entertainment, drugs, opioids, 
opioids a painkiller. And we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. Alcohol, isolation, video games, marijuana, all these ways. We experience pain. See, we have these things in common as people. We're all going to experience pain, suffering, pressure. None of us like it. And we all look for ways to relieve the discomfort in our lives by finding comfort. I grew up in the generation, my generation, maybe you remember, we learned how to spell relief. See, what spells relief for you? For us, <laughs> some of the younger people are going, what's he talking about? Gang, how do you spell relief? <laughs> R-O-L-A-I-D-S. Now the kids are going to go, what? they're going to Google that and go, what? <laughs> we learned how to spell relief. But really, there's other ways in our lives we spell relief. It's that few bottles or glasses of wine. It's a six-pack. It's however else I got to have relief from the stress that I'm under. Some methods of relief are healthy and bring true relief. Other methods, non-relational methods, isolated methods, substance methods of relief actually bring temporary relief, but more pain that then needs more comforting, that brings more pain, that brings more comforting. So God is going to show us here. I mean, we don't have to look far to find people in pain. Just look around the room. If we could look into your heart, we'd say, there's a lot of people here and we're in pain, pastor. We're struggling. We're under a lot of pressure. Things at home are tough. Things at work are tough. Financial pressure. We got kids going to college. How are we going to handle that? Family pressure. So Paul gives us some real practical benefits listen carefully, of painful and stressful experiences in our lives. Because we live in the time where we think, and we've been told our culture is one that says, pain is bad. And we are to avoid it at all costs. Now, I'm not saying pain is good. It doesn't feel good. But pain is necessary and useful. And I hope by the time you walk out of here today, you'll have maybe a different view on the benefits, the necessity, the purpose of pain and stressful situations in our lives. Look at verses four, five, six, seven. Paul uses the word tribulation, trouble in verse four, sufferings in verse five, afflicted, sufferings and suffer all in verse six and sufferings again in verse seven. Paul made a decision in his life to go because people were hurting, people were lost. He said, I'm gonna get out of my comfort zone. We've talked about that. I'm gonna get out of my comfort zone. I'm gonna go and expose myself to pain and suffering so people can know the truth. And he gives a list in chapter 11. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was whipped. He was abused. He was left for dead. All these things that happened to him. And the end of this list that makes you cringe, he says, and beside those things, as if that wasn't enough, the care for all the churches, all the churches he planted, all the people in the churches that he planted and he worries about them and he stresses over them. As pastors, we worry about our sheep. We lose sleep when sheep don't get along. It causes the shepherd trouble. And so we worry about conflict. Is Satan getting a foothold? Are people destroying the fellowship? Is there what's going on in the church? And Paul says, look, as a pastor, I deal with a lot of sufferings. And to this church that is challenging his apostleship, he could be puffing up his chest and telling them how great he is. But instead, we find a letter where he's boasting about his weaknesses. He's boasting about his troubles. 
and he's sharing, he's transparent about how he really feels about what's going on on the inside. And part of that is the care for the church, is caring for people. So he uses all those words, and then 10 times in the same seven verses, he uses the word consolation, to console. It's the Greek word parakaleo. The Latin, where we get our English word comfort, comes from a Latin word, confortis, which means, are you ready? You take notes, to be brave together. So when we think about comfort, we think about Ben and Jerry or something else like that. But the word that we're talking about here actually means to be brave together. Something that encourages, not something, someone that encourages. Because the word parakaleo, the Greek word, is the same word used of the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And it literally means one who is summoned, one who comes alongside. I mean, sometimes it means one who comes to your side or to your aid in the time of need to encourage, to strengthen you. It can mean to give advice, to tell you what to do. If you go to the doctor, you're asking the doctor to console you, to tell me what to do. I've got this diagnosis. I don't know what to do. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're the doctor. You tell me, what do I do? I need a spiritual physician. I'm not a spiritual expert. So I got to go to God. I need this Holy Spirit in my life to come alongside of me when I'm hurting. And I need to say, what do I do? I mean, you know the heart of God, Spirit of God. You tell me, what do I do? And then I have to listen. We're so busy telling God what to do. And we need to listen. Say, come alongside. It's always the idea of a relationship that enables a person to meet some difficult situation with confidence and bravery. That's the word comfort. So Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, uses Father twice there, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. Have you ever prayed and asked God to take away your pain and he didn't do it? And you wondered, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't have the power to do it. Maybe he doesn't love me. I mean, God could do it. Why doesn't he? And I hope you'll find an answer, at least one answer to that question here in this passage. God has a purpose in pain. For God, compassion doesn't just mean I feel for you, but I can't reach you. Doesn't just mean a distant and disconnected pity. You think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who had mercy, the one who had compassion. That's what the word mercy is. It means compassion. It means to feel deeply so that you're moved to do something to help. So the good Samaritan sees the guy laid in the road, stripped naked, robbed, left for dead, and he has compassion on him. He has mercy on him. He comes to him to help him in his time of need. That's what compassion is involved with. And we have a God who says, Paul says to you and me, we have a God who is the God of compassion. He's a God of all mercies. In other words, he sees people in pain and he wants to move to them. Question is, will we want to move to him in our pain or do we move away from him? I mean, how else can you discover that aspect of God unless you've suffered? And some of you will say, some of you will agree that, man, suffering wasn't fun, the pain, the pressure, it wasn't good at the time, but man, now looking back, would you trade it? Paul said, I want to know God in the fellowship of his sufferings. God has a purpose in suffering. You think about a child on the playground, two-year-old, three-year-old, 
they got a lot of independence. They're going their own way. They're doing their own thing until they fall off the jungle gym. And what do they do? They come running back to mom and dad. It's bleeding. It's bleeding. I'm dying. And you said, come on over here. Let me kiss it better. Put a little band-aid on it. Okay, now, toot, 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 get along, go play. Okay, and off they go. The kids learn that pain can be dissipated in relationship. And there's a reason that Paul refers to God as a father. Now, I'm not sure what kind of home you grew up in or if you learned that you could dissipate or deal with pain through relationship. If not, then you've learned that I'm on my own when it comes to pain and I got to handle it myself. When you were a teenager, who did you go to when you were in pain? Could you go to mom? Could you go to dad? Or did you learn, I just got to handle it myself? Now, as a temptation, if you grew up in a home where your parents were disconnected, they weren't emotionally connected to you, they didn't speak with you, they provided for you, but there was no relationship there, not one where you could go to them and tell them how you felt, then you become a Christian and you think God is that same way. And Paul is telling us God is not that way. God deeply cares about your suffering. And he wants to come to you. And he wants you to come to him. That's why he allows affliction. Because if you didn't have it, King David said in Psalm 119, until I was afflicted, I went astray. Doesn't pain bring us back to God? Pain keeps us close to God. A woman named Billy Wilcox said this about her time in the mission field. While my husband Frank and I were living in Pakistan, many years ago, our six-month-old baby died. An old Punjabi who heard of our grief came to comfort us. A tragedy like this, he said, is similar to being plunged into boiling water. If you are an egg... Your affliction will make you hard-boiled and unresponsive. If you are a potato, you will emerge soft and pliable, resilient and adaptable. It may sound funny to God, but there have been times, she says, when I have prayed, oh Lord, let me be a potato. We want a God who loves us enough to never let us suffer, but we have a God who loves us enough to let us suffer so we can draw close to him. So two things are needed for this to happen, for you to go there, Number one, you have to trust God. You have to trust that you can come to him, that he'll welcome you, and that he's able to comfort. And then you have to know what it looks like when God comforts, because you're expecting one thing, God gives you another. What does it look like for the apostle Paul? In chapter seven, he tells us, he says, I had conflict on the outside and fear on the inside, but God, who comforts the downcast, sent Titus, a friend a fellow worker. And Titus brought me good news of how things were going in Corinth. So people, fellowship can bring comfort. That's from God. You guys bring me great encouragement. So people, and then good news can be comforting. Paul goes on in chapter 12 to talk about the thorn in his flesh, and he prayed that God would take it away. And God didn't take it away. Instead, God gave him a revelation of grace. Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what he gave Paul. And it encouraged Paul so much that Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. So sometimes a new understanding of your pain can bring you encouragement and comfort to endure it. I'll tell you for me personally, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15 says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is Paul to the Corinthians. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Being a pastor ain't no joke. 
we're dealing with people. We deal in broken lives and hurting people. And as pastors, we pour out our hearts and pour out our lives to help people. And then sometimes they just spit in your face. No good deed goes unpunished, as they say. They're hurting. They're broken. They're angry. They're bitter. They're not ready yet. You try to help. No matter how good you do, no matter how hard you try, it's not going to go well because they're still broken. And as pastors, we always feel like failures. Every time someone leaves your church, no, not that I have a church. God told me about years ago. That's another story. But every time someone leaves, we're going through the church down the road. As much as we want to tell you, we're okay with that. And we understand God is moving people around. But just every pastor, I think, that I've met, it still hurts. Because we feel like, how come I couldn't minister to you? Like, what was I doing wrong? What's wrong with me? Did you not like my teaching? We're human beings. That's what this is about. Paul is a human being. And he has feelings and emotions and struggles. And he's found that he doesn't have to live in that place that he can find comfort. Like I find comfort. Hey, the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That's going to happen. You're going to love people and they're going to hate you in return. I'm not alone in that experience. You're not alone in that experience. So instead of checking out and go, I'm never helping anybody again, because that's what we do, we just recognize, wow, Jesus, you really help people that spit in your face. You went to the cross, they ripped out your beard. And you said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Wow, I'm encouraged by that. I'm not alone. I'm dealing with the sufferings of Christ. So that's one reason, a couple of reasons there. Then he says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So another reason is not just drawing us close in relationship with God when we hurt, when we're under pressure, but drawing us close in relationship with each other. There's a purpose in our pain, our pressure. It makes us actively compassionate people. When you look around the body of Christ, there's a lot of people that have grown up in really difficult homes, a lot of pain, abuse. People have been neglected. People have been rejected in their families. The place where God intended for love and care and protection has been a place of hurt and pain. And you say, well, God, why would you let that happen to me? Why would that happen? And God is telling you right here that what you went through was not empty or meaningless. It was purposeful because there's a lot of people going through that same thing right now. And as you work that through with God, as you deal with that pain by going to God, he's going to enable you to then go to others. The most powerful ministries have been started by some of the people who grew up in the most difficult circumstances because they understand pain and they get compassion. They get it. In the body of Christ, there's a lot of perfect people who don't understand compassion. We'll pray for them. Do you know what it does when people walk into a church and meet with compassion instead of judgment? If people come in and they're bringing all their baggage and they're loaded down and they're not coming in perfect, they smell like alcohol, aren't we thankful that they're here? Because we want to introduce you to the God of all comforts. Who comforts me when I'm hurting? You don't have to find comfort in alcohol. You don't have to find comfort in drugs. You don't have to find comfort in porn. You can find it in God. So you have to know what he's doing, how he's comforting. You know, one of the biggest mistakes parents make is to try to make their child's life without struggle. There's two extremes, really. On one, the extreme is to release kids from trouble. We want to never have our kids struggle. So we always intervene so they never have to feel the pain. 
Well, that's wrong too. You're going to stunt their growth. It's important that they struggle. It's important that they learn to take their struggles to the living God, who's the God of all mercies. You can't always be there for them. And you're going to leave them without that comfort, without that ability to be strengthened. So one wrong way is to release them from it. Another wrong way is to retreat from them. If they're going through something, don't just try to fix them or patch it or give them information. The right way is to give them relationship. That's what they want. To respond like God responds when we hurt with compassion. To come alongside of them and encourage them while they're suffering and say, tell me how you feel. If a parent asks a child that question, just tell me how you're feeling. Time Magazine 2019 talked about a study that was done in the Journal of Abnormal Psych between 2009 and 2017. The rates of depression among kids ages 14 to 17 increased more than 60%. That's six zero, 60%. And also among kids 12 to 13, that's up 47%. And 18 to 21, that's up 46%. The same trends were true when researchers analyzed the data on suicide, attempted suicide, and serious psychological distress. The term applied to people who scored a test that measures feelings of sadness, nervousness, and hopelessness. Among young people, rates of suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts all increased significantly, and in some cases more than doubled between 2008 and 2017. These findings are based on data from 600,000 people. So we know people are in pain. And because you're afraid, people are afraid that they're never going to be able to get out of that pain, they find a way to comfort themselves. And God is all the time saying, I am here and I'm alive and I want to comfort you. I want to come alongside of you. I want to encourage you. And the church should be there saying, come on in. We want to comfort you. We want to encourage you. We want to come alongside of you to help you in your time of need. Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, weighed down with pressure, and I will give you legalism. And I will give you a set of rules to keep. What's he say? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest for what, church? Rest for your soul. There has never been a time, I think, in America, more ripe for the gospel. Because people are in boatloads and truckloads of pain and trying to find how to get out of pain, how to get relief from the pressure. And it ain't spelled R-O-L-A-I-D-S. It's spelled J-E-S-U-S. Verse 5, for as the sufferings, the pathema, the difficult, negative emotions, pains, experiences of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, that's the word pressed like grapes, the wine press. If that is happening to us, it is for your consolation, your comfort, your salvation, which is effective for not getting free from, but for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul is experiencing both affliction, difficulty, pressure, and comfort. And on both sides, he says, this is for your benefit. Whatever I'm going through, It's for you guys. If I'm going through the ringer, if I'm in a real time of difficulty, pay attention. You know it's not going to last forever. If God is your God, he's got his hand on the clock. He knows exactly how much you need and he'll dose it out 
based on the relationship at the time. And you will find eventually, as you keep going, as you keep going, God says, come to me. Cast all your cares upon me, for I care for you. And so you cast them on God, and then you take them back. And he says, cast your cares upon you. You cast them on God, you take them back. So until you finally cast them, then you find relief. He gives you his word. He sends people. He gives you preaching. He gives you revelation. You find comfort. You go, wow, okay, the pressure's off. The pressure's off. When you learn that, Paul says, now I can understand better how to comfort you when you're going through it. The most powerful ministries, grief share here at our church, addiction ministries that happen in prisons. These things happen because people have been hurting. They've found comfort in Christ and they say, I get it. I understand how you're feeling. And aren't you, when you're in that place, don't you want to talk to someone who understands? So it moves us toward each other. And our hope, verse seven, for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. I know that if God did it for me, he can do it for you too. We have recorded testimonies of people's lives. And here's what I was going through. Here's how God ministered to me. Here's my life now. And every so often I was sitting not too long ago with a young couple in the church office and was talking to them about their lives. And I pulled up a testimony of a young lady in our church. I said, this is really going to relate. And as they watched it, I watched them hold hands and I watched their eyes get teary. And she, through her testimony, was ministering to them. And I could tell there's a connection happening because she shared her suffering. They're going, wow, I'm suffering like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's hope for me too. This is interesting. I read this article, the ultimate proof that looking happy on social media often masks real pain. Tracy Clayton, host of the BuzzFeed podcast, Another Round, asked her followers if they would be comfortable sharing a photo they had posted on social media during a time of personal strife. In other words, they post a picture of them looking happy and eating great food and doing something fun. When meanwhile, what's going on behind the scenes says within minutes, the tweet blew up and 600 retweets, 2,500 likes. That was at the time it was written. People shared photos of themselves posing happily and confidently for the camera. And then they added a caption explaining what was really going on when they posted that picture. Some of them had just experienced an anxiety attack. Others were worrying over family members' health. And some had just spent moments crying at their therapist's office. Why can't we be honest? Why can't we come into church and say, how you doing? I'm fine. No, you're not. Just say it. I'm not fine. It's okay. I'm not fine today. I need help. Let me pray for you. That's how it works. That's how relationship works. I can't fix you, but let me pray for you. It's amazing. Paul's Facebook post would have been completely different. Look what he says next. This is crazy. He says, my personal experience, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So instead of puffing himself up and telling what a great pastor he was, he said, man, when I was in Asia, in Ephesus, I struggled with depression. That's what he says. The word trouble is, again, the same word he's talked about already, Philipsis, tribulation. And he said, man, we went through some stuff there. The word burdened literally means to be weighed down or depressed. Did you ever think about the Apostle Paul doing all this ministry? 
there's many open doors and there's many adversaries and God's bringing all kinds of people and Paul's preaching to the crowds. And meanwhile, on the inside, he's struggling with depression. It's what it says right here. I was going through those feelings and it was beyond measure. That's the word hyperbole. It was beyond, way past what I could handle, above strength, above my own strength, so that we even despaired of life. I didn't know if I was going to make it. When I looked at my situation, I don't know if I can live. I don't know if I'm going to live through this. What was happening, pastor? I don't know. He doesn't say exactly what it was, but it was causing him some real internal stress. Do you see that? But notice for Paul, he didn't stay there. He didn't live there. It wasn't permanent. It was purposeful. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves in order that, so that, for this reason that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There was a lesson there. People are stubborn. You know any stubborn people? How many of you know somebody right now who is suffering and they just will not break? Does anybody know someone like that? Maybe they're sitting next to you. I'll come to church, but I don't know about this God stuff. You're a drunk. You know, you need God. You need help. No, I can handle it. Until a person is broken, they'll never turn to God. And Paul says, I learned a huge lesson. I learned where I end, God begins. I learned when I ran out of strength, God has to bring you to that place where you go, I can't take it. Because God knows that's the only place where you'll finally look to him for help. Maybe that's somebody in here. How long do you have to go? I meet with people all the time. They want stuff from God. They don't want God. I want God's help, but I don't want God. Okay, you'll be back. Because whatever comfort you get, mercy triumphs over judgment. We can help you out financially. But if you keep living the way you're living, you're always going to be in pain. The only way to really deal with it, you can't ignore it. You can't stuff it. You can't suppress it. It's going to leak out in all kinds of ways. And until you take it to God, you will never heal. But when you do, you'll find a ministry there. And that's what Paul's saying. I learned that God is waiting to help me. He's the God of all mercies. And I learned at that time that I can trust in God who raises the dead, who takes hopeless situations and breathes hope into them. He delivered us from so great a death and he does deliver us and in whom we trust or hope that he will still deliver us. God is merciful yesterday, today, and forever. He's delivered in the past. And the word deliver is interesting too. Let me share with you one more vocabulary word. It means to draw away or snatch to oneself, to bring someone out of danger. The word was used in secular writing to describe a soldier going to a wounded comrade on the battlefield and carrying him to safety as he runs to the cry of his comrade to rescue him from the hands of the enemy. Did you see the movie Hacksaw Ridge? I don't know if you've heard of it. It's based on a true story, a guy that lived in Lynchburg, Desmond Doss, and he received the Medal of Honor without ever lifting a gun because he rescued guys that were injured in battle. They dragged them to safety. That's the picture. That's the picture that God is waiting to drag you out of the hands of the enemy, out of the place of danger, and to heal you. But you got to cry out. That's how the soldier knows through the smoke, through the bullets, through the mayhem, through the noise, who's injured. I don't know. I can't see. And then he hears a cry for help. Help, I'm over here. I need help. I'm injured. Ah, keep talking. I'll come to you. And then he goes to that person. Ah, I got you. I got you. It's going to be okay. I've got you. 
Have you had someone in your life like that? I've got you. It's going to be okay. We'll get you patched up. And then you patch them up, boom. I don't care if you've been saved two weeks, two months, 20 years. Get on the battlefield. Go hear someone crying for help and go help them. Come alongside. You want to see the church grow? You want to see God's kingdom expand? Go to hurting people. Jesus is a physician. He didn't come for healthy people. Stop wasting your time with people that don't know. Go to people that know that they're hurting and broken and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hurting Savior. Finally, verse 11 says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. How good are you at asking for prayer when you're hurting? No, no, I'm okay. I'll figure it out. Paul was not shy about asking for prayer. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Second Thessalonians 3, Paul says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will spread quickly. Pray that others will honor it just as you did and pray that we will be saved from sinful and evil people. That's a good prayer. I like that prayer. Romans 15, 30 says, I urge, I parakaleo you, I beseech you to come alongside of me, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. One of the ways we share relationship is you share your struggle with someone else that opens a window to your soul so they can pray with you and develop a relationship there. And that makes the body of Christ closer. And so Paul says, man, pray for me. You know, as Charles Spurgeon has said, it's not great pastors that make great churches. It's great churches that make great pastors. Being a pastor ain't no joke. Can I hear you say amen to that? Being a pastor ain't no joke. It's emotionally, physically exhausting. And you constantly feel like a failure. I shared some of this earlier. You're constantly second-guessing yourself. Did I do enough? Have I helped enough? Did I do the wrong thing? There's criticism, there's critique. And then a letter shows up in the mail. Two days ago, it's on my desk. And I open it, it's from the Dillwyn Correctional Center. And a guy from the Correctional Center begins to talk about how he listens to 105.3 and how much he's being encouraged by the messages from Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. And whatever happened that week, whatever person criticized, whatever issue is going on, whatever conflict ain't resolved, I just read that and it ministered to my soul. Thank you, God, for a comfort that you came alongside of me. This is from the hand of God. This guy didn't know, he's just writing it out. Well, I'm gonna thank this guy, but I take it this is from God. And not only that, Wonderful letter. I'm going to go visit him. He's going to hear this on the radio because he listens. He's going to know I'm talking about him. But here's the cool thing. In the letter is a check. He sent a check to support the ministry of Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, from prison, which is more sad to say than some people that sit here every Sunday do. $16.48. In God's economy, that's a million bucks right there. That's a million dollars. And it comforted my soul. And that is God. We have a God of mercy, a God of all comfort. And you need to know that God. You need to go to him with those things and go to each other. Aren't you excited for 2 Corinthians? 